we return to our series through the book of Malachi and having worked our way through to the middle of chapter 2 and coming upon the unsavory topic of divorce, we have found what God thinks of it. Last time we covered the central verse of the passage, verse 16, wherein God firmly says, I hate divorce. And then we ran through an overview of what God has said about divorce throughout history. We discovered that God never intended for marriage to be thought of as something less than permanent, but rather that when he makes two into one, he expects that no mere human would dare separate them. However, we also found that because of the rebellious and sinful nature of people and because of the messes we create in our sin, Moses had at one point allowed divorce if a certain condition was true. He did this to protect women who were basically being thrown out on the street in a less civilized world. People debated for centuries about what Moses meant when he said, if he finds some indecency in her. But when Jesus came, he removed all doubt and interpreted what Moses had said, explaining that the only permissible reason for two of God's people to divorce is pornea in the Greek, which in context means sexual immorality of an unfaithful nature. According to Moses and Jesus and the entirety of Scripture, two believers should never get a divorce for any other reason. I also mentioned that I do believe there is a time for extended separation, particularly in the case of abuse. Before I continue to review a little bit, I want to say something else that might be astounding, which is this. It would seem that God's perspective on how humans generally live is that we are way off base. We are, in fact, doing it wrong. Sometimes people read the Bible thinking God should fit in with our modern ideas about what is right, but guess what? It doesn't work that way. God's standard has never changed. I'm here to tell you that in my lifetime, man's standard, particularly in the area of marriage, has changed dramatically. And so if you haven't read or studied the Bible a whole lot, or if it has been a while, you should expect to be shocked by what God has said is right and what God has said is wrong. See, God actually has the nerve to tell us what he thinks about our choices. He does that through the Bible, which is why we preach it and teach it in this church. We happen to believe that what God thinks and what God says matters. If we didn't, we wouldn't be here. Now, none of us always likes what God says because none of us are perfect. But some of us choose to listen, to repent as needed, and to let God change us, while others choose to ignore or reject and rebel. My point is that the message of God will be quite different than what you have heard elsewhere. Does that really surprise you? Do they teach the Bible in our schools these days? I mean, what... TV? Do we get it on TV? Anywhere else today besides the church, really? Do they teach what God has said and what God is saying? Anywhere else? No, in fact, what God has said is all but banned from public discussion. So why do people come to church expecting to hear the same thing they are hearing everywhere else? Why are we surprised when we find out that everything else we have been hearing is wrong? Why do we expect to be unoffended 
by what God says. When we finally stop for a moment and read the Bible or show up at church to listen. A better question is this today. Will you hear God and let him change your heart and mind? Or will you continue in your rebellion of thoughts and actions against him? Last week was a tough sermon because God had the nerve to say something we didn't want to hear. We focused last week on Malachi 2.16 where God says, For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. And from this, I made four points. Let's quickly review them. They're a whole lot of fun. Number one, divorce is loathsome to God. We don't have to wonder how God feels about divorce. He hates it. You can start with your yeah buts if you want, and we talked about some of those, but regardless, this much is true. God hates divorce. Second, from verse 16, divorce is outwardly violent. This is what is meant by the phrase, and him who covers his garment with wrong. The main idea of the Hebrew word translated as wrong here is violent activity, and we're talking about violence that stains your clothes. We say there's blood on our hands, or there's blood on your hands. They said there's blood on your shirt. The idea is that everyone can see what you have done, and that what you have done has caused harm to real people, including yourself. Divorce hurts people. God speaks of it here as a violent act. Third, divorce is spiritually avoided. God says, take heed to your spirits so that you won't do this. You can pretty well know that if you are instigating divorce, you are not right spiritually. The best way to avoid divorce is to stay close to God and make your best effort to walk in righteousness with his spiritual help. Four, divorce is treacherous behavior. There's no getting around this in Malachi. The word treacherous is used four times to refer to divorce in our translation, including this time here in verse 16. God says divorce is actually treachery. And we will find this to be the main idea of the rest of the verses we will cover today. Now, at this point last week, I did share a bit of a disclaimer explaining that sometimes in order to find the one guilty of God's definition of divorce, we need to look and see who has actually been treacherous. This is the reason for the exception Jesus gave in Matthew 19, where he indicated that if there is sexual immorality of an unfaithful nature... Divorce can be permissible, though it's never preferred. I think part of the reason for this exception is that since divorce is defined as treacherous behavior, the one who acts treacherously through adultery is really the one guilty of instigating the divorce in God's eyes. Regardless, as I pointed out, Jesus clearly prefers that divorce be avoided if at all possible, even when sexual immorality has been committed because God hates divorce. As Jesus indicated from the beginning, the idea that a husband and wife could divorce for any reason was never God's intention. Now, let's go ahead and read the entire passage, all of which centers around verse 16. But starting with verse 10 of chapter 2, the prophet Malachi writes, Do we not all have one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously against his brother so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord which he loves and has married the daughters of a foreign God. As for the man who does this, 
May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob everyone who awakes and answers or who presents an offering to the Lord of hosts. This is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion, though she's your companion and, there it is, and your wife, your companion and your wife by covenant. But not one who's done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, how have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or well, where is the God of justice? By the way, this last phrase, where is the God of justice, is a, is a pivot. It is a turn. It, is, it applies to the verses before, and it's going to apply to the verses after. Next week, we'll be talking about justice. It's going to be an interesting one. You don't want to miss it. Last time we covered the fact that God hates divorce. Today we will get into the why, which is revealed in the surrounding verses. Why does God hate divorce? And the short answer is this, because divorce is treacherous. To act treacherously is to betray. Divorce, in essence, is betrayal, which we might define as the opposite of love, particularly as we understand that love is a verb. Divorce is betrayal, and betrayal is unlove acted out. This is the big picture reason why God hates divorce, according to our text. It's all throughout. Let me expound on this idea for a moment. In order for betrayal or treachery to even be a possibility, there must first be friendship. There must first be love. Let that sink in. You cannot be betrayed by a person who is an acquaintance or someone you do not know. Treachery happens when a close companion, a teammate, a family member, or someone who has previously been loyal to you purposefully acts to cause you harm. To betray is to unlove someone whom you previously loved. There's nothing so harmful as betrayal in human relationships, nor is there anything so unlike God. The Bible says God is love, the Lord is all about long-term, even eternal, loving relationships. Our God is all about loyalty, fidelity, and faithfulness. This is who God is. Conversely, betrayal is at the very core of the identity of Satan, which is another reason God hates divorce, because his adversary, Satan, is behind it. Now, what was the worst and the most famous betrayal in the Bible? Probably in all of history. Judas, Judas Iscariot. And do you remember how Judas betrayed Jesus? With a kiss. This informs us, by the way, about the kind of relationship Jesus had with his disciples. A kiss on the cheek was an intimate sign of friendship in that world. Like a, like a really meaningful hug. That's what it was like to them. And this certainly would not have been the first time Judas greeted Jesus in this way. It was common. It was what they did. Only this time, what had previously been done in love was being done in betrayal. 
Nothing in this life hurts like betrayal. Nothing. When Jesus sweat drops of blood and cried out, languishing in prayer that night, that night, that very night in the garden, maybe this betrayal which was about to happen was foremost on his mind. Clearly, this soon coming treachery was on the mind of Christ in the upper room hours before. Remember how Jesus agonized over the fact that he already knew that one of them, one of his beloved twelve, was going to betray him. Remember, they asked all of them asked, Well, who is it? Who is it? It's not me, is it? After that, Jesus told Judas to go and do what he was about to do. Hours later, Jesus sweat drops of blood in anguish as he prayed, asking God to let this cup pass from, he, from him, yet adding, nevertheless, thy will be done. The very next thing that happens is that Judas arrives with an angry mob to arrest Jesus. I wonder if this betrayal was possibly even more painful to the loving heart of Jesus than the cross. And of course, even the cross was betrayal. The very humanity he came to save tortured and killed him. Betrayal or treachery is one of the worst things that can happen to a person in this life. Betrayal kills love. According to our text, divorce is betrayal. And this is why God hates it so much. Now, let's get a little bit more detailed as we walk through our text and let's answer the question, why does God hate divorce? Starting with verse 10, we see that number one, divorce betrays God's family. Malachi writes, do we not all have one father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously each against his brother so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? All that family language. Scholars agree that verse 10 sets up the second section of Malachi and should be understood as the opening of a new address on a new topic. And so there's this shift also to a larger audience. Prior to this, the audience has been mostly the priests, but now God is addressing all of his people on the subject of divorce. That's what this is all about. And as I explained last time, it was a big, big problem for the remnant of Israel. So understand that verse 10 is pointing forward to verse 16, where God says, I hate divorce. Unfaithfulness in marriage or divorce is the context of verse 10. So this is an admonition from God to remain a loyal and loving spouse rather than to become a treacherous one. Just think about what we dare to do under the fatherhood of God through divorce. With our Father God looking on, we betray our spiritual brothers and sisters. See, all of the family of God is betrayed through divorce. We are all impacted negatively because we are one body in Christ. In fact, if you both know Jesus, then your spouse is also your brother or your sister in Christ. So we could take this that way as well. Bottom line, we mess with the father and the rest of his family when we betray each other as husbands and wives inside the household of faith. Now, the Hebrew word for dealing treacherously, which is used here in verse 10 and throughout the passage, again, four times, is bogad. Bogad. To deal treacherously or to betray. Bogad. It just sounds bad, doesn't it? I even wondered for a moment if the word bad is a modern-day contraction of this word, bogad. I, don't, I didn't bother to Google uh, that long shot. I'm sure it's not true. But regardless, according to Hebrew dictionaries, this word means to betray. 
The participle form of this word, when used as a noun, actually comes out to be the word traitor. Now, if one commits treason against his own brother or sister, does he not also betray the father? And even the other brothers and sisters in that family? Certainly, betrayal against one member of a family is betrayal against the entire family. Yes? And see, this is the exact point Malachi is making. And then he adds that this betrayal also profanes the covenant of their forefathers, of their ancestors, of their upline family, which is a reference basically to all the promises of their, of their forefathers, which is, uh, you know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all these covenants, Moses, David, right up to this point in history. We've been reviewing our Old Testament. I'm going to do it today, but we've been doing it about every other week. And we know that this point in Malachi is at the end of all that, all these promises that have been passed down through this family, through the fathers. And the promise was basically that as a part of this family, they would be God's people and as such would be blessed by him. Which meant that their children, their children's children be blessed until eventually a savior would even come from their offspring. But Malachi says they are profaning the very covenant that is promised to them by betraying each other. And as we find out in verse 16, the specific betrayal of which he speaks, how are they betraying? Is divorce. Listen, the betrayal of divorce is never ever contained to the husband or the wife. Both in Malachi's time and today, divorce betrays the people of God. That is the household of faith, which today is the church. Divorce betrays our spiritual forefathers and mothers, and it betrays our brothers and sisters inside the body of Christ. Divorce betrays our children and their children. God hates divorce because it's a betrayal of his family. Secondly, the reason he hates it is that divorce betrays God. If someone were to ask me to sum up this entire passage in three words or less, some of you are like, that'd be a short sermon, I'm for that. But if I had to do it in, in three words or less, that might be the best I could do. Divorce betrays God. Put another way, if you choose to be unfaithful to your husband or your wife, you choose to be unfaithful to God. This is really what the bulk of our text is about. Therefore, we'll spend most of our time on this point. In fact, Malachi actually gives us three ways that God is betrayed through divorce. So I have everybody's favorite today. That is subpoints. Some people like to make fun of me when I have subpoints, but that is okay. I can take it. So, first of all, under the heading of how divorce betrays God, which is under the heading of why God hates divorce, here is small letter A. Divorce profanes God's temple. This is one of the ways the divorce betrays God. Look again at verses 11 and 12. Judah has dealt treacherously. There's that bogad betrayal word again. And an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves and has married the daughter of a foreign God. As for the man who does this, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob everyone who awakes and answers or who presents an offering to the Lord of hosts. So again, we need to read this in light of the summary condemnation of divorce that is coming in verse 16. We know also from our study of Ezra last week that in order for these men to legally marry foreign, pagan, idol-worshiping, 
women, the daughters of a foreign god, as it says here, they were first divorcing the wives of their youth. Because Moses said they were required to give a writ of divorcement if they got a divorce for the sake of their original wives so that they could go on with their lives. This reminds me of our own behavior sometimes. It's like if we followed the Word of God perfectly in one area on the way to utter disobedience in another area. Or it's like if you stole money to give it to the poor. That's kind of what it's like to divorce someone just to be legally free to marry someone else. Which is exactly what Jesus spoke against and the reason he called it adultery rather than a second marriage in that case, if you remember from last week. So the first area of their betrayal of God is identified here as the profaning of the sanctuary of the Lord. I must be brief, but this is a reference to the temple which at that time literally housed the presence of the Lord in the inner sanctuary, also called the Holy of Holies. At that time, the Holy Spirit of God literally rested in that place, and therefore to profane the temple was to profane the Holy Spirit. Sometimes people died for just coming too close to this place. This is part of how God showed them His holiness. Right now, the point is that the temple of God where the Holy Spirit lived was the last thing you wanted to profane. This statement would have struck fear into the original audience as well it should have. More importantly for us, where is the temple of the Holy Spirit today? After Jesus ascended, the Holy Spirit was poured out on the earth and the New Testament says He came to live in the hearts of all true believers, Romans 8, 9, and that our very bodies actually become His temple. This is explained in many places, but let's look at one passage in 1 Corinthians where the Bible says, 1 Corinthians 6, 17, but the one who joins himself to the Lord, the one who's saved, the one who becomes a believer, a follower of God, someone who has salvation, eternal life, the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man, by the way, this is about sexual immorality. This translation doesn't say that, but it absolutely is. The sexually immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you're not your own? For you've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. You see how this passage shadows our text today? Only bring it into a New Testament context. If you have truly put your trust in Jesus Christ, you are now the temple of the, uh, the, the sanctuary, the temple of the Holy Spirit. So what happens when you get a divorce? And particularly when you do so in order to immorally join yourself with someone else? Or what happens when you commit adultery on the way to a divorce? Sinning against your own body, you profane the temple of the Lord, or as our Malachi text also puts it, you commit an abomination in the very presence of God. You see, the Lord is right there with you, and He is in you, even as you profane His temple in your immorality and betrayal. I don't know about you, but I feel like that is a pretty dangerous thing to do, to profane the sanctuary of the Lord, which now is my body. Verse 12 of our Malachi text makes it pretty clear what happens to the person who does this. Look back at verse 12. Malachi says, such a person is to be cut off from the people of God. The reference to he who awakes and answers is a bit unclear. 
but was probably a colloquialism that basically meant everyone in the camp, meaning any person in God's household is cursed or cut off from the family if they choose this path. That's what Malachi says. Essentially, that he says, may the Lord no longer consider anyone who does this to be a part of the family of God. They must be cast out of the sanctuary lest they continue to what? Profane it. That's what he says, and that's how it was. Now let me also remind you, as I have throughout this series, that there is no longer such a curse for those who truly know Jesus. There is not a literal cutting off based on behavior. Once a person truly is saved under the new covenant, however, there is discipline and there can be a loss of God's blessing and perhaps a loss of heavenly reward or heavenly honor. And there is certainly the matter of whether your actions might demonstrate that you do not actually know Christ, which is also suggested in verse 15 where Malachi says, but no one who has a remnant of the Spirit will do this. Still, let me be clear that regardless of these dire warnings, divorce is not an unpardonable sin. Those who've been divorced can be redeemed just like the rest of us, but no one should dare to overlook the fact that divorce profanes God's temple, thereby betraying God, which is also why the consequences are grave. Now, the second way that divorce betrays God is a betrayal of His intentions. I'll put it this way. Divorce thwarts God's desire to bless. This to some degree comes throughout the passage. We'll look at verse 13. Apparently, divorce breaks our fellowship with God, and in so doing, it keeps God from blessing us as He desires. Verse 13, this is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, and with groaning, because He no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Malachi says that God no longer accepts your offerings or your prayers or your worship with favor. And the context is that this is because of divorce. God no longer responds to your worship with approval. He no longer answers your prayers or blesses you with His favor, even though you may weep and groan with tears. Why? Because you have betrayed Him in that you have betrayed your husband or wife. Remember, and you can see this if you are filling out your little outline and your listening guide, the larger point here is that divorce betrays God. You're breaking His covenant and walking away from His fellowship, even as you're breaking your covenant of fellowship with your spouse. But what is this sub-point about the blessing or favor of God? See, this is actually what was going on with the people. Where is God? That's what they were saying. Why doesn't God still take care of us? Why is everything so much worse than it used to be? This temple stinks compared to the last one. Where is the favor of God? Can He even hear us? That's really what the people were saying in this entire book. Where is God? Why doesn't He do something? Why doesn't He help us like He used to help us? And God is flat out answering their question right now by saying, because you are divorcing each other. That's why. Listen, when there is unrepentant sin in your life, guess what? God is no longer in a position to answer your prayers or to bless you the same in your sin. If you think you can just do what you want because of grace, you miss some pretty important stuff in the Bible. Even as a believer, your fellowship with God can be broken. 
He may not continue to hear your prayers or notice your tears or respond to your offering of worship if you're choosing some sin over obedience to Him. What do you need to do? You need to repent, which is more than just being sorry. Repentance means you make it right. In the context of divorce, this means you stop the betrayal if it's at all in your power to do so. The third way God is betrayed in divorce, according to Malachi, is this. Divorce misrepresents God's character. Look at verse 14. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth. This is what I've just been saying. But notice also the phrase, the Lord has been a witness. The Lord has been a witness. Understand that Christian marriage is a covenant between three parties. Husband, wife, and God. The Lord God Almighty is a witness to our vows. He is involved in this union called holy matrimony. Marriage is a three-way covenant. God is in the middle of it by His Spirit. Even in the consummation of your marriage, He is there. As Hebrews tells us, let marriage be honored by all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. All of this means that God is implicated when you break your vows or become physically unfaithful with another person, any way you slice it, divorce makes God look bad. Listen, divorce shows that what God has joined together by our own brazen sinful willpower can actually be torn apart. Marriage is supposed to be a picture of the gospel. The idea that Christ and His church are one body, nothing misrepresents the gospel of Jesus Christ, like divorce, Ephesians 5 and other passages teach us that marriage is designed to be a picture of the relationship we have with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. The husband represents Jesus. The wife represents His bride, the church, those He died to save. If the wife divorces the husband, it's as if the church betrays Christ. And if the husband divorces the wife, it is as if Christ betrays the church. This is the message we broadcast in divorce. When believers divorce each other, the faithful relationship God actually has with His children is severely misrepresented. See, marriage is supposed to be an earthly representation of the new covenant of God and man, a covenant of permanent love and faithfulness ushered in by Christ's death and resurrection. When two believers divorce each other, their testimony to the world is that God cannot be trusted to keep His promises. We say to the world, not to mention any children involved, that there is no security in the promises of God. If one holy covenant can be broken, why not another? It's all shaky ground at that point. Stay with me, you'll see this is just exactly what Malachi is getting at. Look at verse 17 where Malachi writes, You have wearied the Lord with your words, Yet you say, how have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Oh, where is the God of justice? Again, this comes right after he just told us God hates divorce. Verse 16. How can God allow such a deep betrayal as divorce? Ask the children. That's what they're asking. Can God not stop such painful evil from happening? Can He not stop us from calling evil good and good evil? Where is the God of justice? 
Why are so many Christian marriages having been joined together by God, nonetheless being torn apart? What does this say about God? Is He even real? I said last week, reason so many, I don't think we're seeing very many people come to Christ in this country. They know too many Christians. At this point, I would like to spend the next two hours as I've been questioning God like that. I would like to spend the next two hours decrying determinism as the obvious nonsense that it is, but instead I'll try to stay on topic. Where is the God of justice in divorce? That's the rhetorical question here in our text. And the answer is that God's justice is coming in His timing. One day, as is stated in the very next part of Malachi, God's justice will be manifested completely. But for now, we have a sin nature that remains somehow in our bodies, and we clearly still have a will that can choose to sin. We don't have to. We could have victory, but we can choose to sin. Surely all of us know that we can either make God look good by choosing to be agents of His justice, or we can betray each other, leading others to question whether a God of justice even exists. This is exactly what happens when two believers divorce one another. As Malachi indicates in verse 17, we weary the Lord particularly in saying that things like divorce are okay or in not speaking out against them. We would say good is evil and evil is good. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. God, God, God is cool with it. He knows how hard it is. It's not that bad. It happens to a lot of people. Evil is good. That's just how turned around we tend to get on things like divorce. Now, let me zoom back out from these subpoints to the main point, which is that God is betrayed through divorce. Maybe that's the main point. God is betrayed through divorce. Folks, just remember it this way. Since God is involved in the marriage, He is also implicated in the divorce. Indeed, divorce makes us all look unfaithful and unjust. Maybe the pastor didn't do, enough, didn't do good enough with his premarital counseling. Maybe he should have refused to perform that wedding. Maybe the church should have said, no, we're not having that wedding here in our church. Maybe the parents should have stopped it. I mean, somebody sure messed up. What about God? See, the holiness of matrimony is made unholy in divorce. It's as if nothing is permanent, as if no promise can be trusted, as if nothing is sacred. Why should I believe I am forever saved if God could not even keep my parents together? That was rhetorical. My parents have been married 60 years. I don't know, close to 60 years, 57 years. Yeah, 58, 56. Couldn't remember my own years last week, if you remember. It was 30 or 31, I couldn't remember, so don't be offended. Why should I believe I'm forever saved if God could not even keep my parents together? You probably know the answer to that question is that divorce is sinful and willful disobedience to God and that it is not His will, which means that He should not be blamed for it. But I'm talking about how this all makes God look. I'm talking about how we misrepresent God's character when even as His family we commit Willful sin and disobedience. Nothing misrepresents God more than the decision to betray your husband or your wife in divorce or to betray him or her in the adultery which really instigates divorce. Let's move on to the third reason. 
God hates divorce, which is this. Divorce betrays your covenant companion. Divorce betrays your covenant companion. Look at verse 14. Yet you say, for what reason? That is, for what reason does the Lord not receive my offering with favor? And here's the reason given. Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, there is no earthly relationship that compares to marriage. None. Not friendship, not parent and child, nothing. In biblical marriage, God makes two people into one. One body, one spirit in a certain kind of way. A holy, covenant-sealed union in which God actually has done something miraculous. But before I lose you in religious language, just think about this for a moment. Think about what you are doing in divorce. You are betraying your husband or you're betraying your wife. You're acting treacherously. I didn't say that. God says that. In divorce, you're a traitor to the wife or husband of your youth. How can you do this? How can you do this? How could Judas do it? Let's just go back to that for a minute. How could Judas do it? Satan. Remember that part? Satan entered Judas and he influenced Judas to betray our Lord to death. Later, he was so filled with remorse, he killed himself. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. He or she is your close companion by a holy covenant in which God is involved. Don't act treacherously. Don't betray your close companion. Maybe somebody's thinking, Pastor, you don't get it. We're no longer close. We're not companions. In fact, I basically hate him or her. All we do is fight. Well, you miss the point of the phrase of your youth. She is the wife of your youth, or he is the husband of your youth. The point is that he or she was once your closest companion, or else you would not have married. What happened? Divorce is actually a very long process. When did the betrayal start? Are you the one who divorced the other, either by committing adultery yourself or by deciding on divorce for some other reason? Repent. Go back to that point and start over. God can redeem your marriage if you let him. As I said last week, get help. I'll meet with you. I'll meet with you if you want. I don't do long-term counseling because I would be robbing you of a better resource. But I'll meet with you as a couple and re recommend a professional as needed. Just ask. Oh, but it takes two, Pastor Mark. It takes two. And he or she is unwilling or unable. All right, I hear that. And I have to tell you that there are times when all you can do is wait and pray. I believe Jesus would have waited on Judas. I believe Jesus would have forgiven even him. But Judas took his own life instead. What about Peter? He betrayed the Lord as well. But Jesus waited. And eventually Peter repented of his betrayal. Jesus forgave him and the relationship was restored. Sometimes you just have to wait. You can only do what you can do. But the admonition is this, don't betray the wife or husband of your youth. For your part, don't do it. That is what God would say to anyone thinking 
of either divorce or adultery today. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Lastly, this morning, divorce betrays your children. And you can tack on or future children if you don't have children yet. Verse 15. But not one who has, not one has done this who has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. I don't have the time or inclination to get technical on this, but let me simply say that the first part of this verse is impossible to translate with surety. If you have the NIV translation, for example, you're reading something entirely different. This happens very rarely in Scripture. The original Hebrew in the first part of this verse is nearly unintelligible. So the translators struggle to know exactly what God wanted said. Therefore, this is one of a very few places where different translations are going to be substantially different in actual content. Regardless, the messy part is really only the first sentence in the verse. And so the overall point is fairly obvious in any translation. Just kind of have to read between the lines a little, but it's there. What is clear is this. True believers who care about the spiritual well-being of their offspring, that is their children, avoid divorce. In fact, given the context of treachery and what's said in the next verse, I believe God is saying that divorce betrays the children who are involved. Divorce betrays them. True believers seeking godly offspring, godly offspring here, that's children who will be saved, do not consider divorce to be an option. That's what this verse is about. My wife and I decided from the beginning that the D word would never be spoken in our house. No matter how much we might fight. 31 years later, it is 31. How many of you think she knew the number? Yeah, she knew. Thank you to those of you who informed her about that moment last week. 31 years later, we're still together. And it worked out pretty well with our kids, if you know them. But if you think it's all been easy, you've got another think coming. Which, by the way, while I'm here, is that phrase. It's not thing. It's think. Just trying to help. You've got another think coming. Listen, if you want godly offspring, anybody? Would that be good? If you want godly offspring, there's a lot of things you need to do. But the number one, most important thing, the best thing you can do is stay together. When children witness their parents betraying each other, the effects are lifelong. The repercussions of divorce on children are impossible to calculate. It's not, it's not only the challenge of determining who gets them or for how long. Uh, custody battles are horrendous, but not even the worst problem for the kids. No, watching their parents divorce will permanently affect their viewpoint about things like love and God and relationships and promises. You can tell yourself all day that you're protecting them from the worst of it, but even if you make sure they don't hear how terribly you feel about each other, they will be profoundly impacted. Why would a child believe any relationship can last or that God would never abandon them when even their parents abandoned each other? And like it or not, those children are going to feel 
like one or the other or one or both of the parents abandoned them as well. They're going to feel like that. Ultimately, divorce betrays everyone. And even worse, as children of divorced parents grow up, it negatively affects our entire society. Divorce is treacherous. That's why God hates it so much. So what should you do? If divorce has started to enter your mind as a possibility, you should take heed to your spirit. This is mentioned twice at the end of verse 15 and again at the end of verse 16. Take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously with your spouse and with your children and with your God and with your church family. Don't betray us all with a divorce that God hates. Take heed to your spirit. Divorce is a spiritual issue. Repentance is the first step. Turn away from the bogad choice and turn to God for help. Even in the very book of Malachi, where such harsh statements are made about divorce. In just a few more verses, God says, return to me and I will return to you. This is the solution. Take heed to your spirit. Spiritual renewal is the answer for you in your marriage. You need to let God Peel away the layers of selfishness and the bitterness that is built up and let him heal you of all the lies that you have begun to believe. Lies told you by Satan, the very one who got Judas to betray Jesus. Wait, is Satan behind divorce? You better believe he is. And you better know whose voice you are hearing. The devil is a spirit to us and he influences our thinking. He is no amateur deceiver. So I would encourage you to stop listening to the accuser of the brethren, as the Bible calls him, and the father of lies, to which he's also referred, before you're fooled into his ways. Every single one of Satan's greatest victories involves betrayal. Turn away from Satan and let Jesus change you from the inside out. Take your eyes off the flaws of your spouse and just let God have you. Let God have your marriage. Let God have your husband or your wife. And most of all, take heed to your own spirit. Come back to Jesus, even if you thought you never left. If divorce is even an option, you need to take heed to your spirit. You know what the opposite of betrayal is? It's keeping faith. To deal treacherously or to betray is to break faith. So to turn away from treachery or betrayal is to keep faith. In fact, the solution to your marriage is all wrapped up in faith. God is always faithful. As one of His, He is there to help you keep faith, to help you remain faithful in your marriage as His representative. If your marriage is painful right now, I encourage you to seek the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul. The faithful one can help you be faithful. Take heed to your spirit so that you do not act treacherously. Faith always lights the way to a better path. Keep the faith. I want to lead a time of prayer for our marriages, just like last week. Nothing is more important. And so again today, I'm going to ask for people who are particularly burdened um, to come forward and pray, and we're going to call this an altar we don't have any steps or anything that you can lean on. I know some of you can't do that anymore. But if you're particularly burdened and you can, I just hope there'll be several people come up as a sign of how serious we are about this as a church. Are we serious about this as a church? Do you care about the marriages of this church? 
Does this church even mean anything if we don't have strong marriages? We won't go anywhere without strong marriages and strong families. We're going to pray today. We're going to pray fervently. We don't know. I don't know who we're praying for. But I guarantee you we're praying for some people in this room. So, um, um, Kristen, yeah. And we're just going to spend a moment. I, I won't be forever, but it's not going to be 30 seconds either, okay? Just trust me that I will end it in a reasonable time frame. But we're going to pray. Is that okay if we spend like, I don't know, five minutes at least actually praying? I, I think it's okay. Yeah, it's okay. Okay. So I hope several will come forward. Otherwise, pray where you are. Let's lift up and cry out to God for our marriages. People need Him. It's not easy. I know that. It's extremely complicated sometimes. We need God. Let's pray. Lord, we lift up our hearts to you 
on behalf of the marriages of this church. I pray that not one marriage in this church would not be stronger over the coming weeks than it is now. I pray every marriage in this church that all of us would, because of the seriousness of the words that we've studied today, do what it takes to make sure we're not going in that direction. We need your help. We get very upset with each other. Lord, we struggle. There are serious issues. I need, we need miracles. We need healing. We need forgiveness. We need you to do a work in our lives. Help us to take heed to our spirit. To focus on our walk with you. That can change everything. I've seen it so many times in my own life. Help us each to turn away from ourselves and the path we've been on and to turn to Jesus. God, we know that you're there to help. Thank you for your love for us. Bring that love into our marriages. I pray today that you'd save a marriage. I pray there's at least one or two marriages in this church that are, that are saved, that are saved because of the work of your spirit, the power of your word, and maybe even because we're in this together as a church family and we don't want to betray each other. Help us to be faithful. Help us to find a way. Help us to wait if we need to wait for the other party. God, help us. We don't know how to do it. Commit our, our marriages into your hands and trust you to help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.